Hi, everybody. This is Patty Negri. Welcome to the Witching Hour. I have a great guest for you today, tonight, this afternoon, this morning, whenever it is you are listening or watching. It's the Witching Hour. Emily Carding, the author of this beautiful combining Shakespeare magic and witchcraft book called So Potent Art. But before I introduce you to Emily, where's Patty? Yep. What if you are listening to this in the first week when we first drop, which is the week of Monday, January 17th, 2022, Patty is home in Hollywood, but I've still got stuff to do. Patty is home in Hollywood, no travel for a week or two yet, um, but there is places we can hang out together on Tuesday. Okay, tomorrow, and there's still room because we let people, I'm doing my magical weight loss class. Because many of us start diets at the beginning of the new year. Many of us might overindulge a little through the holidays. So I have this self-proven way to combine, guess, all the stuff we know we have to do, the diet and the exercise, and but with magic to make it easy, to make it fun, and to make it too effective. So it's really great. Um, you could just go to universitymagicus.com, Patty's weight loss class. It's inexpensive. Tomorrow night. Tuesday the 18th. On Sunday, I am doing, not through my school, I'm doing a seance. You guys can come because wherever you are, it's through Victor Wind at the Last Tuesday Society in the UK. I mean, you'll be wherever your computer or laptop is, but what's really fun about the shows I do with Victor is that it's based out of the UK, so it really is an international audience. So the few of us here, we keep it pretty intimate, sitting on that little Zoom screen together. Again, a lot are in the UK, they're in Canada, they're Australia, they're here. So um, I'm used to an international audience with my school, but it's even more international because it's based elsewhere. I have posted that on my all my social media, um, Last Tuesday Society, Seance, it's a great chance. Everybody gets a chance to ask for their loved one, their beloved. I, of course, can't guarantee that mom will come, grandma will come, but we have a pretty good track record um, of somebody coming and usually the person you ask for. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Guess what time it is? Woohoo! It's time for the Willow Report, the wiggliest time of day, whatever time of day it is. Now, I know the last couple of weeks, it seemed like more like Willow therapy. How is Willow going to get along with the, the haunted doll? How is Willow going to get along with the cranky old cat? So maybe this is Willoughby th therapy. Willow therapy hour? I don't know. But what I realized some of this is, is she's a teenager. She's a terrible, terrible teenager. Um. I don't have kids of my own. This is it. But I've certainly been one. And I've certainly have friends who have a lot. Um, she's got two boyfriends. She's boy crazy. She's testing me all the time. She's obstinate. She's rebellious. She purposely does bad things. And then just wants love and to be so sorry for it. And to make up just like that. Um, she has more energy than you cannot stop her for doing anything in the world. But then when she's sleeping, you can't wake her up for anything in the world. And I'm going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's me at 16. So I don't know what an almost 10-month-old and a couple days dog is. 
equal to a 16-year-old, but that's what she is. So it makes me understand more when she gets up on the couch on her little step and then throws all the pillows off just because she can. It's like my other dog, Dora, didn't do that in her 15 years. But you do. You're a teenager. You like to rearrange the room yourself. I know. So anyway, we're just in the phase, and we're loving her, and it's really great. And she has two boyfriends. It's great. She has her early morning boyfriend, Spencer, and she has her afternoon boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I... I just wanted to go. This doesn't have to be willow therapy every week, but I just realized why it's been a rough couple weeks. She hit that age group. So any thoughts you have on teenage dachshund or teenage dogs, especially these are the most obstinate of dogs and the best dogs, um, how to do it. I know Joe Burke, you're out there. You're going to be my dog whisperer. Um, let me know any tips and hints you have. Otherwise, I know she's going to outgrow it. And I mean, if, if she reached 16 in less than 10 months, she should reach adulthood pretty soon, soon, right? Right? Ah! Anyway, that's it. For the naughty, naughty, boy, crazy, obstinate, fabulous Willow. Would you look at the camera for once? Look at the camera. No, she just won't do it. That's the Willow report. Um, so, but before we do that... Should we do some magic? Yeah. Now, Emily has a very big theater background. And I have a bit of a theater background. And she's got a Shakespearean background. And I don't have much of a Shakespearean background. She puts them together. But what we do do together is the witch part and the theater part. And here's a place where I combine both of them. That's in our visibility or invisibility, so to speak. Um, we've used terms and I've talked about before things like putting on a glamour about a glamour what like when you look your worst and then you run into your ex or somebody really important at the grocery store and there's an energetic way you can literally you can literally will yourself to look good to that person because we know energy is everything we know our words are important our actions are important but the energy putting out is equally important so they won't see that you're in your worst sweats in that same idea of putting out you know changing looking good when you don't look good feeling good when you don't feel good um going into theater terms you could put the spotlight on yourself or you can make yourself invisible yep you can make yourself invisible almost i mean you go wow invisible man like tv not quite um i actually started this first from the theatrical world and brought it into my witchy world. I you know I used my witchy techniques, but didn't even put them together at the time. I, for a long time, ran a very like kamikaze theatrical production company where we never had a theater. We would go to you. We would go here and there, interactive. We did murder mysteries, we had game shows, very all over the place. So we rarely had the luxury of backstage and lightings and crews. So we would get to a place and we'd get to rehearse it once or twice and then, and then we'd perform it for people. So we'd have to do all our staging and our blocking. So in the show that we would normally do, it's like, okay, you're stage left and then you disappear and then you come back on stage right. There is no way to disappear in a non-stage stage when you're in a banquet room on the Queen Mary or you're something else. So I would teach my actors how to be invisible to get across the room 
without anybody noticing. Now, of course, if they really looked, they could see them, but time after time, I would pay attention if I was in the show somewhere else. You know, if somebody just, okay, I'm going to sneak from the left side to the right side, everybody would notice them. Everybody would notice them like, wow, that person's trying to sneak to the other side of the stage. But if they put on an invisibility cloak, energetically, you're not putting out that energy. They would just do that exact same thing. But all of a sudden, people weren't looking at them going, that actor is trying to go to the other side of the stage. And the same thing with a spotlight. Um, we didn't always have the best of lighting in these places. We'd show up and we'd go and the lighting guy was on vacation. Um, same thing. Okay, you take stage. You have to pull of everybody on stage. There's five people here or three people here or 20 people here. You're going to talk next. So before you talk, you have to pull all the energy. Put the spotlight on yourself. And I would teach people energetically how to do that. And that's great for theater, though. So, you know, 10 seconds before Brett speaks his lines, he has that energy. All eyes come to him. One thing, that proves magic works, right? That, that is the thing that works within spells and everything else. But even if you're not a theater person and you want to invisibly get to the other side of the room or you want to put the spotlight on yourself, we all sometimes want to blend in a little more. And we all sometimes want to stand out a little more. And you can do that with your energy and your intent. Again, whether you're walking into a party or, or your kid's school or whatever, and you want to just make that first impression, set your energy up. Remember in psychology-wise, we use that mind-body-spirit thing. And create in, act, in witchcraft, I use creation working dispatch. But first, you have to set your mind to belief system. I am going to I'm going to put a spotlight on myself. It's a beautifully shadowed with a nice pinky tone. So a good spotlight on myself for all to see that when they when I walk in this room, um, set your intention, set your belief system to it, set what you're looking like within that, whether it's what you're really wearing or not, the energy that you're putting out, the emotion that you're putting out. Take that deep breath and walk in. And guess what? people will see it. Or maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe you've shown up somewhere and, oh, you didn't quite get the dress code and you're not quite, you know, it's, it's not that you got to hide from your ex kind of thing, but you want to blend in that mm, you didn't quite get that exact, you didn't get the memo kind of thing. So you want them to see your brilliant smile, your brilliant energy, your brilliant face, but not notice what you're wearing. Set it up before you walk in the door. As you walk in the door, if you just walk in and go, I promise it works. Okay, instead of seeing this, I'm going to give myself some more color here. Mind, body, set it up what it is, what you believe, what you're going to put out to the world. Put it in your thought pattern. Take action within it. Change your body pattern just a tiny little bit. Walk into the room and you will get it. Magic and spell crafting and creating the life, it doesn't always take candles and herbs and oils and chants and dancing around a circle. It's what we bring into our everyday life. It's the attention we want to bring to when we're driving. So you can make yourself invisible. You can put the spotlight on yourself. Use it for the betterment of your life and for the betterment of the people around you. So now let's talk Shakespeare, shall we? Let me introduce you to Emily.
And today we're going all the way across the pond, all the way to East Sussex in the United Kingdom to bring you somebody really, really special that I am excited, excited to introduce and get to know myself, Emily Carding. Emily holds a BA in Theater Arts from Bretton Hall and the MFA, sorry, I'm not seeing well, in Staging Shakespeare, listen to that, um, from the University of Exeter. They are an initiate in the Alexandrian Wiccan tradition and have been working with tarot for over 25 years. Emily is the creator of several tarot decks, including the Transparent Tarot and the author of Fairycraft by Llewellyn. As an actor, they are best known for their international tour of the award-winning Richard III, a one-person show by Bright Theater. Visit them at childofavalon.com. But to get to know herself, let me introduce, thank you, Emily, welcome. Oh, hi, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to meet you. Um, just a, a brief correction there, my oh. website is now emilycarding.com. Oh, okay. EmilyCarding.com. We will correct that. We will write that everywhere. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I know it's hard to find the right information. Um, well, what we're talking about today, this beautiful new book of yours, I'm going to show it up because it's my new coffee table book. It is So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare. Now, I know you have a very theatrical background and a witch background. So how did this, is that a natural or how did this come about? Yes, it was quite a natural um, progression for me. Um, my my journey has been one of weaving in between different paths. So I I started off um, training back up up in Yorkshire in the nineties at a drama school called Bretton Hall, which also happened to be on the grounds of a nature reserve. Mm. And um, so at the time that I was training in in theatre and away from home for the first time. I also found a local witchy shop and started spending a lot of time on the land and um, connecting with the spirits of, of place and the spirits of the land and learning all these different things about different pagan paths. And so the, the two were always sort of parallel. Then I spent a few years acting. I had uh, unexpectedly uh, a child um, came into my life and I, I left theatre and then focused on the magic and the writing and the tarot creation and so on. Then went back into theatre when I did my MFA. And at that point, I realised that all of the magic training and and writing and experience that I'd had over the 10 years that I'd spent not in theatre, I could bring into my theatrical practice. And so I went into my MFA um, knowing that I would have to do like a thesis, a big dissertation at the end of that, that my topic would be the the esoterics, the magical content of Shakespeare. And in context of theatre practice, it was how can I apply any of this wisdom practically in the rehearsal room or or on stage? And a lot of that thesis was taken and put into this book. So, so really, I started writing it seven years ago when I was on my MFA. And then I've always had that thesis sat there going, well, I could expand that into a book. But then instead of for, I mean, it would appeal to actors, but instead of being specifically for actors, now it's for the pagan magical pr practitioner audience. 
It's it's beautiful. And and I again have a bit of a theater background, not like you, and the pagan background. And we've always known, oh yes, the witchy Shakespeare, the this and then that. And I think even in some of my openings and closings, I think that's probably Shakespeare I'm quoting. I don't even what black spirits and what I think that's Shakespeare. Oh, yes. Um, but but you put this together so beautifully um how you i'm just looking at your chapters how you go into the hermetic Shakespeare, and i was looking at your tree of life you've got it all into the kabbalistic tree explain a little of that for how that works how that helps your magic it, how the how applying shakespeare to the tree of life yeah. helps with, with yeah magic? I, I went right there <laughs> what what when you take a system like um, like the Kabbalah, which was a Christianized version of which was very popular in Shakespeare's time, um, and uh, you take a system like that and you put you could sort of impose the plays onto it or see how the plays fit within that system, then it sort of gives you an idea or a key into the substance of the plays and a justification for using those aspects of the play in your work. So it's another tool to use in that sense. Because the tree of life from the Kabbalah gives us a map of the universe. So why not use it to map the plays and then through that see what the plays can teach us about the universe and about ourselves and how we can take these these different parts of that and use them in our in our magical work for those purposes if that makes sense yeah it it it's so much because we know again shakespeare is so po powerful actually my producer rob and i were talking just j just before we dialed on about the power of words we as pagans know the power of words people know the power of words more or not but his use of words even i maybe that's why actors are afraid of it sometimes as we were talking about or but the power there. So how much do you think is, is, that's what it is? Is it the, the the choices of words that he made to create this power? Yes. Um, really, it's Shakespeare's words and the way that he uses words, as well as the various layering of wisdom that he's brought into that that makes Shakespeare so special. The stories are usually not original. There's only one or two that he's made the majority of, as far as we know himself, but mostly he would take stories from other sources and then give them his own spin. So you can't say, oh, it's the stories or necessarily the characters that make Shakespeare so powerful, but the way that he uses the words, the rhythm of the speech, the combination of, of words is so incredibly beautifully crafted. And that conscious crafting of the words gives them um, an inherent power which is incredibly useful in magic. Right, which because that hits you in, in an emotional place, which mm. that there goes everything in, in a beautiful way. So, um, okay, so getting into, since my other world is a very ghosty world, we're gonna go, every, I'm gonna go back and forth because that's how I do it. I'm, you know, I'm a paranormal investigator. I do paranormal TV. So really? talk to me about Shakespeare and ghosts and witchcraft, how you fit that together or looked at it. So there's an entire chapter just on the ghosts, um, which was one of my favorite chapters to write because you start to think, okay, well, let's include ghosts as a, as a supernatural thing. You start to look at the different ghosts in Shakespeare um, and what, what they might imply about Shakespeare's world and Shakespeare's beliefs. 
And you realise that through exploring this supposedly fantastical element, you learn a hell of a lot. Um, and it reveals so much about um, about Shakespeare's world and I think about, about himself, um, especially when you consider how he uses ghosts and, and magic in general compared to his contemporaries. Because he was he was coming from the um, sort of the revenge tragedy tradition initially, where you would have a ghost rise, you know, rise from the grave and say, "Avenge me." Um, in the sort of and then really the Greek uh, tradition, and um, he takes that with Hamlet, and then puts this twist on it as he does so well. So he has the ghost of. Hamlet's father rise up and ask Hamlet to seek revenge. But he puts this in this whole context, um, which reflects the society that he was living in, of Hamlet and his dear friend Horatio have been students at Wittenberg University, which was the birthplace of, of rational humanist philosophy. So they wouldn't have believed, certainly didn't believe in purgatory. Um, but the first person that you have see the ghost as this almost solid, con uh, absolutely concrete thing in front of it is Horatio, the most grounded character in the play. So, you know, then as an audience member, you're meant to believe in this thing. And then this ghost comes and tells you that it's come from purgatory. <laughs> this sort of in between this Catholic belief in between heaven and hell. Um, and you suddenly have this hidden commentary on this forbidden Catholic belief in the times uh, that Shakespeare was, was living in when you had to be Protestant, Catholics were being hunted down as heretics. But we believe that Shakespeare's family may have been Catholic secretly. So all these sort of nuances, when you start to dig a little bit deeper, reveal themselves through these fantastical elements. So the ghost in Hamlet is a really fascinating example. When you get later on in that same play, the ghost itself takes on slightly, it, it establishes rules in the beginning. So various people can see it. When it appears, everybody can see it. Later on in the play, when it keeps appearing, it appears at one point in Hamlet's mother's, um, well, they say the closet, basically her bedroom. Now she is probably carrying some guilt, depending on how you interpret the character, but Hamlet's father has been killed by his uncle, so his father's brother, and this has all been kept secret, the ghost reveals this and so on. And so Gertrude may or may not be implicit in that. There's a point where Hamlet is trying to confront his mother and the ghost appears again, but his mother cannot see the ghost. So does that mean then that it's just in Hamlet's mind? So then that teaches us something about the character of Hamlet at that point. So it, looking into these elements, it's not just about, oh, this is a fun, fantastical thing that he put on stage to be entertaining. When you, in, when you investigate them, it starts to reveal all kinds of nuances about the play, but also about the world in which Shakespeare was writing and his beliefs. And which also goes into our world and our beliefs and makes us look at that. Yes, absolutely. Because, because I mean, I'm, I'm only talking about Hamlet right now, but the ghosts appear in quite a few different plays in different ways. You get all these different types of ghosts. I'm, I've always been very interested in ghosts as well from an early age. So... It's particularly fascinating, um, but again, um, in 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 Hamlet, 
uh, specifically. Um, oh, I've sort of lost my thread. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. You know when you know what you're going to say, and then it's just like all the time. <laughs> Take a break. We'll sip. We'll sip water. Hello. Other plays. <laughs> <laughs> And then probably I'll wheel back when I remember what I was trying to say. Um, in Julius Caesar, you have a very traditional ghost that kind of appears and says, I'm going to curse and haunt you for what you did. In the in the text, it says that it's, well, not in the text, but in, in the sort of the play script, as the character says the ghost of Caesar, but it's not actually named as the ghost of Caesar. It says, I'm, I am, you know, your... It's almost like I am your sins come back to haunt you, which is really interesting. Um, but you also have all kinds of different spectres and spirits appearing in that play. And people don't necessarily think of that as being a particularly haunted play. Um, I know what I was going to talk about, different types of ghosts. Um, so you have these ghosts that are born, um, that everybody can see, that are clearly real hauntings that have come from somewhere. But you also have the ghosts that maybe come from a guilty conscience. So, for example, Julius Caesar, as I was saying, um, that when Brutus sees the ghost of Caesar, it's very likely coming from his own guilt, and he almost realises that. And though this is before psychology was even a word that even existed as a science, wow. but Shakespeare seems to understand that the ways in which the human conscience can, can manifest itself now, many people have said the same thing applies to the ghosts in Richard III. So in Richard III, he goes on a murder spree to find his way to the crown, basically. And at, at the end, he starts to be haunted by his conscience, which he's been beating down through the whole play. And then the ghosts of everybody he's killed in the tent before this big bat battle come back and haunt him in his dreams. So it'd be easy to think, that's clearly his guilty conscience manifesting itself in the vision of these ghosts, except that Shakespeare then gives us the parallel scene of Richmond, who is going to succeed Richard, is the one he's fighting against, Richmond in his tent, and all of the ghosts of the people that Richard has murdered also visit Richmond and promise him victory. So then you know that, these go that we are meant to believe that these ghosts are real. Well, it's it's beautiful, and, and again, it's just it it no matter what it captures into life, which seems such like such a different world and different life, but it makes people think, which is what this world needs now. Um, I also like about your book that you have exercises at the chapters. So what what and like every chapter of the Hermetic, and you have an exercise. So what is an exercise you would put for for ghosts? So in the book, I have. Um, an exercise in, in the ghost chapter, which is a tarot spread. Ah. Because as we're talking about ghosts and the psychology of the human spirit in itself, I thought, well, okay, let's take this idea of going deeper into our own psyche and translate that into a tarot spread. Um, so you have positions for um, certain questions that, I mean, I'm just going to have a a quick look at it and remind myself okay. but it's the spread itself is in the shape of a dagger ah. so that you start off at the in the hilt of the dagger and then work your way to the point 
and each of the different positions applies to the different plays and different ghosts. So you choose a significator, so that's a card that represents yourself, and that position is called Sweet Prince, which is something that refers to Hamlet. And then as Hamlet, you're first addressed by the ghost of Hamlet's father. Because if the, the ghost of Hamlet's father is really his call to adventure, if that ghost had never appeared, that play wouldn't happen. It re, that play really is a ghost, a ghost story. So who or what is calling you into action at this time? Is the first question that your card is answering. And then across from that, you have remember me. Which is the one is not he's not just asking for revenge, the ghost of Hamlet's father. He's also asking for remembrance, which is get which again relates to um, purgatory. And um, people would ha would have to say prayers for the souls that are in purgatory so that they might one day be released from purgatory. And this is the request that the ghost is making. What action are you being called to? So it's who is calling you into action? What action are you being called to? Then we move into Richard III and we have Richmond's tent. What blessing are you being offered? Opposite Richard's tent, what is holding you back? And then a play that we've not mentioned yet, uh, Macbeth, because we have witches in Macbeth, but we also have the ghost of Banquo. And again, just just flitting back there to the idea of whether other people can see the ghosts or not, it's the ghost that nobody else can see. So this is almost definitely Macbeth's guilty conscience. Or has the ghost only chosen to appear to Macbeth? Because in Shakespeare's time, it was sort of known as one of the abilities of ghosts is they could choose to only appear to one person. So that's a choice that we make. Um, I remembered what I was going to talk about Hamlet. I hope I can remember when I finish talking about this. Um, so what is haunting you from your past? Then we move on to Julius Caesar. Bury Caesar, how can this be laid to rest? Then we move into um, another play, the, the Dream of Posthumus, that's from Cymbeline. What is supporting you? I'll talk about some, the ghosts in Cymbeline in a, minute, in a minute because it's really weird. I mean, that play is weird, but this is, it's strange. It doesn't, apply, it, it doesn't really follow any of the conventions of playwriting at the time at all. And then Act Five is your final card, the likely outcome. Um, so all of the exercises in the book draw on the content of that chapter and give you a, a practical way of exploring it for yourself and they kind of build on each other. So they're giving you the skills that you need to build up your own practice based on this wisdom until you get to the end where you're guided through, if you wish, to prepare your own piece of ritual theatre. Because I believe that this kind of creative approach where you're finding inspiration and drawing it through yourself is the best way of, of teaching rather than just dry knowledge. Um, but what I was going to say about Hamlet that I remembered was that modern um, theatre makers are coming at this play with, with the question of, well, people don't really believe in ghosts now for the most part. So how, for the most part, the, the supposedly, right. I think on some primal level though, people feel it. If you take Hamlet and you make it like the ghost isn't really there or isn't really real, the play doesn't work as well. 
you have to be brave and go full on supernatural. Make it work however you can. But that ghost will still send shivers down an audience's spine. Even if you make it a very human father-son relationship, it needs that belief. You need to believe that that ghost is real for the, for the play to work. Which is something you have to have in magic and everything that we do in our belief system. You can't not believe it to have anything work or step into it. So again, I like this just direct connection. Here is Shakespeare. Here is what we're looking at. Here is what we did. Now, how do you now look at your life and how do you put it into to your life and make you work? I love that that's a tarot spread. That's beautiful. Um, okay, now I'm going to go to my other favorite subject, fairies. Fairies are very popular these days. So you have a whole chapter on fairies. I see that. That's right. And they do, um, as they have a habit of, it's very difficult to contain fairies. They seep into a lot of the other chapters too. <laughs> because in, in Shakespeare's time, witches and fairies were very closely connected and fairies were also closely connected with the spirits of the dead. So they all those three witches, ghosts and fairies kind of, Initially, it was one big chonky chapter, and then my editor very wisely said, "Could we make these three separate chapters?" Um, but yes, I mean, most people, even if you don't know Shakespeare very well, know *A Midsummer Night's Dream* or know of it, and they know of *Titania* and *Oberon*. And that play is obviously absolutely steeped in fairy magic. But you have various other mentions of fairy and appearances of fairy or fairy-like beings throughout Shakespeare's works. So what does that mean to you? What do, what do you think Shakespeare was saying with the idea of what a fairy is? I, th I think it, what's very interesting is that um, it varies through the plays. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, you have Titania and Oberon. When we first meet them, they're in conflict, they're arguing, and Titania is confronting Oberon saying that the world is out of balance because they are arguing, essentially. And it, it's, you, you, Titania has this wonderful speech, which is still so relevant, maybe more relevant than ever now, when she describes the, the, the seasons are out of order and the fields are flooded and it should be winter, but it isn't. And, and all of this comes from their conflict. So you realise that you're dealing with very powerful beings here. And then, of course, you also have Puck, a hobgoblin, very mischievous, a figure straight out of English folklore, whereas Titania and Oberon are more sort of classical um, romance tradition fairies. Um, Titania is a name taken from one of the titles of Diana in Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is one of Shakespeare's most prominent influences. So there's a very classical influence there. But then, yes, yeah, Shakespeare's English folklore knowledge is very apparent in the character of Puck. It's this first place that he appears in English literature, but he's very much the hobgoblin of English folklore or the Robin Goodfellow. Um, and then you have the, 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 the sort of the, the, the more uh, lesser status fairy characters that follow Titania. Now, they're described as being able to hide in acorn cups, but they also seem to appear human size. So we know that they can appear as various sizes and they're innately very powerful beings. Now, 
this became so influential on the pop culture idea of fairies, but people got quite selective about it. So people blame Shakespeare for the fact that we ended up with this diminutive, small, winged fairy instead of the large, powerful fairies of um, sort of older folklore and Irish folklore and so on. Really? But but I but I think that that comes from the subsequent spin-offs of of those Shakespeare plays and how fairies became popular, but they wanted to make them nice um, as opposed to dangerous and powerful because the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream are dangerous and powerful. The fact that Puck on a whim, yes, it's a comedy, but Puck on a whim can take um, the poor amateur actor Bottom's head and turn it into the head of an ass without even having to think about it. And the fact that the whole earth and the whole environment itself is in turmoil because the king and queen of fairy are arguing, you can't, you can't in fact argue with the fact that these are very powerful fairies. And that to me suggests that Shakespeare really respected these old beliefs. Then other writers made, they saw the popularity of figures like Puck and, and fairies and so on, and then they started to make much more comical or absurd versions of them, and they started to diminish in power in pop culture. But I believe if you go, if you actually really look at Shakespeare, then um, he knows, he, he really knows uh, more than I think people give him credit for. That's beautiful. So what is the message of fairies or the lesson of fairies? What would one of your exercises, whether it's the one in the book or not, be about fairies? There is an exercise in the book, um, which is a guided meditation to Titania and Oberon. Um, and I believe that's about finding what your gift in the, in the world um, is. But you, you have in, in Shakespeare, in terms of what the lesson of fairies in Shakespeare is, it's it's really interesting to me that some people, some folklorists, some very knowledgeable, uh, respectable people suggest that the connection with fairies and environmental concerns is a modern invention because we tend to put our own political or, you know, our, our current concerns onto whatever beliefs we have. Yeah. And and sure, I see that, but, but Shakespeare is showing us here that these the fairy king and queen are intimately connected with the land. So working with fairy will teach us to, it teaches us connection, it teaches us the true power of the spirit within the land and how we need to work with that, not expect spirits to be our little helpers and really to be very careful not to get on our wrong sides and to earn their respect so that they don't mess with us and show us to be an ass. Um, the meditation journey you uh, you bring you don't know exactly what it is that you're taking to them but something will appear in your journey that you present that represents your gift to them they in turn present you with a gift well i'm not going to spoil you as to what that don't is spoil it. you got to get the book you got to get the book that is beautiful again i love how this putting into real life which is what the whole book is so now we'll get to my third great thing which is we go from ghosts and fairies and the rest of my world witches so Shakespeare witches, as you said, witches are, you know, big part there, but what about witches in Shakespeare or the message there or the lesson or any stories you want? To... 
Yes, well, I'm going to take you back to fairies, actually, because... Oh, yay! The... <laughs> Bear with me. Because the three witches of Macbeth, which, you know, if we thought fairies in Shakespeare were responsible for influencing pop culture, the witches in Macbeth even more so. You know, they've they've really... People can, even if they don't know Shakespeare, can draw on that image of the three witches around a cauldron and the chanting. Um but if you go back to the original source that Shakespeare was drawing from, they were not described as witches at all in um, Hollinshead. They, they were described as being three nymphs. And if you look at his, an historical account that we have from the time of Shakespeare's play, when somebody, um, I forget his name offhand, but he was a prominent astrologer at the time, Went to see went to see uh, Macbeth, and we have this account where he says, "And the king Mac Macbeth, um, well, it wasn't the king then, but, but Macbeth goes to see these three nymphs. They're, they're not witches. So the only time that any of these three witches is referred to as being a witch, other than the fact that that they're listed in the characters as being witches, is when one of them is being insulted. We don't even." She's re she's recounting a story about how somebody says to her, "Aroint thee, witch," when she's asking for for something from her as an insult. That is the only time they don't refer to really? each other as being witches. They're the weird sisters. Um, Macbeth calls them hags at one point, but when you look at the the rules that they follow, the fact that they are three. And that is a number um, throughout fairy tradition that is very powerful and important and recurs through folklore, that they can vanish into the air, that they have the power of prophecy, that they don't actually, you know, they, they tell Macbeth that he will be king. They don't tell him to go do a bunch of murders to become, he decides that himself. And in fact, the seed of that darkness is already within him before he gets to meet the witches. So they are agents of fate. And that is where the the word fairy comes from, from the French for, for fate. And, and fairy tradition often presents us these triple formations of, of of, of fairy women or fairy goddesses, fairy queens, who are representatives of, of faint, similar also to the Norns in Norse tradition. Um, so I believe when we're looking at specifically Macbeth, the play best known for having three witches, that we are actually dealing with fairy beings who've appeared on the moors. Beautiful. Now you can compare that to other Shakespeare plays in which other witches appear, and they are very human. They are witches that practice, you know, the human women or men who practice magic. Um, and they, they summon spirits and sometimes those spirits stay with them. Sometimes they turn against them and some, some of them come to sticky ends. But they're markedly different from the witches in Macbeth. Interesting. Interesting. So now how would we take that into an exercise to bring it into our own life or our own practice or our own you know, getting through this plane of things? Good question. Ah, or what's the exercise there? Or we can move ah, on. No, I remember. So, um, well, I don't remember. I just had to remind myself by looking in the book. Um, 
So through those three chapters of sort of ghosts and fairies and witches, I've been talking about an idea that we haven't touched on in our conversation yet of the world's soul. Ooh. So the anima mundi, um, which is an old neoplatonic concept, so very ancient concept from ancient Greece. And this is the idea of the, the energy that comes from the universe into the world to ensoul us so that everything has spirit and everything is connected and it it, it really is um a core principle of, of hermeticism the fact that everything is connected and one of the the goddesses that, that i most prominently work with hecate has an aspect which is the world soul and hecate obviously also appears in macbeth so she's there as an identifying factor so the way that Titania and Oberon are, and then the way that the three witches are, and as a triple aspected um, goddess, potentially, or fairy beings, that is in line with uh, the, the way that uh, fairy queens who represent the world soul often appear. And so the exercise that comes through the explorations of those chapters is one which enables you to connect with the world soul. It's a simple visualization, but it's a really powerful one that I do every night, um, which really helps to open up your own energetic awareness and your, your empathy, but the, the realization that we're all connected to each other. Beautiful. Now you guys have to get the book so you could see what the exercise is. It's a. This is um, stopping myself from telling everybody everything. I, I know. I I do have that too. I tell everybody everything. It's like, well, it's, but um, no. But this this is a good tease. This is a lead into. Um, again, just looking through your chat. We don't have that much more time, but oh, really? you go into oracles and omens, and you go into invocations, and you go into plants and herbs. All the things that we who live in the pagan world, the witchcraft, these are parts of our our world, mm -hmm. and these were parts of Shakespeare's world. So it's kind of not even it doesn't have to be that quickly, but wrap it all up. What is the whole, well, your story, your purpose? Okay, this book, well, this, or my thoughts on this, Shakespeare, this, Pagan Path. Two seconds. No. <laughs> no, just, not at all. We do not have to rush. But I, this, I'm just so in awe of everything as, as I even and turn the pages. Um, so. Oh, thank you. Your well, thoughts. I really just wanted to share something that's been so special and so inspiring to me. I feel like it's part of my purpose here to inspire people and help them to find inspiration, like spread that spark. And to me, I find Shakespeare so profoundly inspiring to the, to the soul and to the creative spirit. So this is a book for people who like to explore their personal power and magic and spirituality through creativity in a sense and giving you the keys to unlock a source of deep wisdom but it's it can also be fun and exciting so we're looking at early modern world early modern magic yes but we're taking that and and twisting it and and using that as raw material to use in our magic in a postmodern world in a postmodern way which i hope anybody can pick up and find interesting and useful and, and relevant. 
it's absolutely perfect. That's what I wanted to hear. Um, so anyway, I highly recommend this. I'm going to go sit down with this now. Um, so Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare by Emily Carding. Um, any last words of wisdom before then? I do want you to tell everybody where they can find you or they can get your book. And if you have anything going on, anything coming up that people should know about. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I have um, a book on another book on fairy coming out very soon mm. called Seeking Fairy, which should be delightful. It's a little hardback gift book illustrated by a wonderful artist called Ciolo Thompson. I don't know if you know her work, but it's going to be, I haven't held it yet, but it should be with us very soon. It's due out next month. Um, and uh, yes, I'm very excited about that. Um, if you go to my website, emilycarding.com, I will update it. Um, there will be things appearing on there soon because I'm planning on, you know, COVID has made my profession as an actor quite unstable, which I think is an opportunity for me to now go back more to my magical work and perhaps teach online. So I will be doing some online courses, which I will be advertising on all my social media and on my website. Um, and then in the summer, I will have a second edition of my Transparent Oracle coming out, Ooh. which again this seems to this is my uniting theme i think this is my mission it's about the interconnection of everything so it's about our relationship with the universe and all the energies that are, are around us that so those, those are my exciting new things that are happening so we're, so where we know it's emilycarding.com for your website How, what is your um social media handles you i'm not terribly mysterious it has to be said i'm emily carding everywhere so that's you, perfect. So now is there there's one other Emily Carding who's an interior designer in Australia, I think. And other, <laughs> other than that, I'm blessed with a fairly unusual name, so you should find me. It's beautiful. So is there any 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 plans for a Shakespearean tarot deck? Well, there are already several. I don't is there? Are there? <laughs> there's loads. There's one um if people are looking for, for one on that theme, there's one called the Shakespeare Oracle, which is actually a tarot because there was a Shakespearean tarot that was out before that. So I guess they couldn't use the same title. That's a lovely deck. Um, there is a shake. There's, yeah, there's a few now. Huh. So I've, obviously, I've thought about it, but I don't want to go over ground that's already been covered. Been there, done I that. Make, yeah. I made a few notes the other day. I was like, I could do a deck that goes with this book that's specifically on maybe just the tempest or or maybe just specifically on the magical aspects of shakespeare so there's there's this maybe the smallest seed okay. of something but okay. don't hold your breath just wonder <laughs> <laughs> well i want to thank you so much everybody i highly recommend this so potent art the magic of shakespeare by emily carding check them out check out the website check out social media and get the book and thank you emily for visiting the witching hour Thank you so much. It's been a real delight. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you.